So we are coming back into this series in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. I'm super excited to get back into this, and we uh, have been looking at what have commonly been known as the Beatitudes, um, these, uh, these statements of good news by Jesus. And so we are going to dive right into that, but I'm going to start with a bit of an introductory story. So uh, a few weeks ago, our, ca- our family was camping at Steamboat Rock State Park. Many of you know where that is. It's by Grand Coulee Dam, and it's on Banks Lake. It's a fantastic place. And each day, we would take our paddle boards and kayaks, and we would load them up with towels and water and food, and our dog Luna with her shark life jacket, which is so cute, I should have had a picture. Uh, anyway, and we would paddle down maybe a half mile uh, to these sandy beaches great spot to set up and just play in the water all day. And out in Banks Lake, there are these rocky islands with sagebrush and small trees. And uh, so one day it was super hot. Samara, my eight-year-old and I, said, let's go out there and explore these little islands, you know? So we go out to these islands and uh, we're barefoot and we're jumping off and finding cool places to jump into the water. And we went on the biggest island because when you you know, see the tops of things. I don't know about you, but I always have to go to the top, right? Like, why not? And so this one had sagebrush and little pine trees, and we went up to the top, and we started to see, like, these, these large feathers, like one large feather, then two, and then four. And then I started to see over this hill a mass of large feathers, and I thought to myself, that might be a dead bird or something, so I'm going to have Samara, a little sensitive, right? Just, you stay here. I'm going to go check this out. So I go check it out, and it is a bald eagle, completely dead, and I pick up a stick, because this is just me, if you know me, and I'm poking at it, and, um, and I realize that this bald eagle that is dead in, in, a, in a very violent way is still soft, like it is pretty fresh, and then my focus, as I start to realize where I am and what I am about to, you know, I'm in danger here, um, I hear Samara's voice, she has not listened, she has sidled up to me and said, Dad, what are all these bones? And my focus goes out, we're surrounded by deer bones and fish heads like this big with their spines all out, and we are in the kill zone of an apex predator. My mind immediately goes to the ranger who said there's a cougar sighting several days, and all of a sudden, fight or flight sets in. I said, we are going to the paddle boards now. Why, why aren't we taking the trail? And you know how it is when you're focused, your feet, you know, I'm just going through the sagebrush. I'm not paying attention. I'm stepping on pebbles. I'm not going the easiest, smoothest way. I'm going the straightest, fastest way. And that's what fight or flight does. It focuses. I'm not thinking about existential problems in life or how big is the cougar or, you know, I'm not trying to answer Samara's questions like, why are you pulling my arm? Like, we are getting to survival, right? My body and my mind were working exactly the way that they were supposed to. This instinct for survival immediately cuts off higher level thinking. Like that's what it's supposed to do. And it is almost impossible during fight or flight to have any kind of semblance of peace. That's not the point of fight or flight. Fight or flight, the point is that you will live to survive another day and then you can have peace. You can start thinking about higher level things. I bring up this story of fight or flight because I think you can relate when you've been scared before. Uh, And I was just reading some articles recently uh, in my continuing ed uh, about what sociologists are calling the age that we're living in right now, the last 18 months or so. 
And they're calling it the age of outrage. The age of outrage. So we've got things going on like the pandemic and the Me Too movement and heightened awareness in a good way of social injustice that's gone on for a long time and now it's coming to a boiling point. We've got divisive politics. We've got a world in crisis with natural disasters and climate change and refugees and Afghanistan. And that's all on top of our own economic, social, mental issues that we have. My goodness, it's like we're living in an extended fight or flight. It's like we're living in an extended state of trauma, which is kind of the point that these sociologists are making, like things are really difficult right now. And our bodies feel the strain, and our patience, hasn't it, worn thin with other people? And it's so much easier right now to divide into little camps of people who think just like we do in an almost fight or flight mentality. And it is utterly exhausting. And it makes peace, at least the ideal of peace, seem impossible. Like, how will we ever get there? How can we ever reconcile these differences? You resonate at all with what I'm saying? Give me nods because you've gotten asked. Yeah, I mean, this is, as I talk to many of you, this is the stuff that we're dealing with in our lives. I mean, is there anyone that you know that doesn't, somewhere deep down, really long for peace in the world, let alone your own community and your own heart? I mean, I think we all want that. Hear then the good news of Jesus, who says, blessed are the, are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Or to put it another way, flourishing are those who work for shalom because they will be full-fledged members of the family of God. Now, the second half of the beatitude is fairly easy to explain, right? The reason that peacemakers are flourishing is because they will be called sons and daughters of the living God. That is, when we are true peacemakers, we look a lot like God, and we're recognizable as part of his family. And it's tempting to just take that point and say something rash in this moment. Great, the world needs peace, and Jesus declares that the peacemakers will be blessed. Let's go do that. And I, I think the world would probably be a lot better place if everybody said, yeah, let's go do that. It's not a bad impulse. But before we try and run off right now and to solve the world's problems, I think it would be helpful to get a better grasp at what Jesus means by peace. Like, what sort of peace are peacemakers supposed to make in the world? Most of us have an image or a set of ideals that come to our minds when you hear the word peace. What does peace mean to you, right? Uh, and maybe it's a sense of tranquility, like sitting uh, on a beach in a, like a Corona commercial or something, waves gently lapping at your feet, sandy beach, I, I don't know, maybe you're Pacific Northwest to the core and you like a rocky beach, whatever, tide pools. Um, maybe it's a night camping under the stars. I mean, that is... We, we saw the Persed meteor shower out under the stars while we were camping. Fantastic, except the mosquitoes. I would not have mosquitoes in my peace vision. Uh, maybe it's an ideal of harmonious relationships. Like a lot of us might have strained relationships with family or friends or people, and you just, you know, my idea of peace would be some harmony there. 
All of those things are great. They're fantastic elements of peace, but by themselves, that is not what peace is. Our idea of peace, and when I say our, I mean modern Western people, which is lumping us into a category, I know, but go with me. Our idea of peace in Bellingham, Washington in the 21st century is heavily influenced by Greek and Roman thought mixed with a little bit of modernism, Western modernism. And we tend to think in ideals. And so when we think about how things, uh, when we think about peace, we typically think about how I experience peace and the people in my tribe or my, my immediate life experience peace. And even when our ideas of peace for other people come to mind, it is my idea of what peace would be in Afghanistan, which by the way is what's got us in trouble in the Middle East, is we don't understand tribal culture. So we think, oh, they need democracy. How does, you know, that's not really working. Um, well, or when you think of peace for another group of people, you typically import your idea, right, of peace. It's just what we do. It's not a value judgment. Don't feel shame. It's just we can't get away from who we are. In the days when Jesus walked the earth in the flesh, the Roman Empire claimed to have brought peace to the world. It was called the Pax Romana, right? And the emperor, Caesar Augustus, was known as the peacemaker. He was the one who claimed to achieve the Pax Romana for the known Western world. Augustus claimed to achieve kind of the Greek ideal of peace, characterized by no war on your home soil or in your capital city, so he kind of got that at least for a few years, Um, strict moral order. Uh, Augustus made some really interesting rules about marriage and divorce and things like that, but basically the Roman moral order, uh, when I say moral order, imagine like adolescence Uh, with power. (laughs) Uh, It it wasn't something that you and I would identify as very moral, Um, but but in his thinking, that's what he had accomplished, and then he got the economy running, and so, of course, this economy was based on on slave labor, and and what it did was achieve um, success and and praise from aristocratic people, which are about the top three percent of the population, And, and those are the people who could keep him in power. Okay, so he achieved a peace for a select few people. But the peace of Rome, the Pax Romana, was not peaceful for most people in the Roman Empire. It was just for prominent men and a handful of prominent women. But for the vast majority of people, there is very little peace. So if you were any other guy except for a prominent wealthy aristocrat, you weren't at peace. If you were a woman or a child, you may not even have legal human status in some circles. Uh, Slaves, which were a a huge group of people in the Roman Empire, did not have peace, right? Uh, Dissidents, people who disagreed with anything that Rome, uh, the empire wanted, didn't have peace. Occupied nations like Israel and others didn't have much peace. And thanks to historical documents and now diaries from some of these aristocrats, we're coming to understand that even those in power in the Roman Empire didn't really have a whole lot of peace. If you were the emperor or a regional governor, you were under tremendous daily pressure 
to make sure that there were no uprisings, that this class of people was happy, that that class of people was pushed down. It was exhausting. And I've got a whole book on the Roman emperors, and pretty much everyone fits into a category of one of these things. Extreme narcissism or paranoia, and several of the emperors just have both. Like, it was a horror, like, you talk about stress, man. There's no peace in the Pax Romana for your guilt or your shame or the fear that people lived with. Pax Romana, the Greek ideal, it's not so peaceful after all. The cost of pursuing personal peace for a few people cost the vast majority um, peace at all. But when Jesus and the biblical authors are talking about peace, they are not drawing on the Greek or the Roman or the modernist Western idea of peace. They are talking about the Hebrew concept of shalom. Shalom. And to understand shalom, it might help to look again at those four great relationships that we talk about a lot in church and I've talked about before in this series. Um, There are four great relationships that were broken when human beings rebelled against God. And so the first one is that we have a broken relationship with God himself, like you and I just have problems with God, right? For all of his efforts of loving us and revealing himself to us and forgiving us, we're literally at church always talking about forgiveness. There's this communion that we do every single week reminding us of God's grace toward us, and we still have God issues, don't we? I mean, we do. And um, most of us live in some form of nagging shame or feeling of not measuring up or some form of alienation when it comes to our life with God. And if you think, no, I don't, I'm past that, how's your prayer life, really? Like, really? I mean, just, just, just ask yourself some questions about how you relate to God. There, there, there's something there that we continue to struggle with, right? And, and so this, that, if my relationship with God isn't intimate uh, as it could be, then that works its way into the second broken relationship with is my relationship with other people. So whether it's shame or fear and anger, or or I'm sorry, my broken relationship with myself. So you have a broken relationship with yourself. Uh, when, When we don't trust that God truly loves us at the core of who we are, then we're gonna have problems with the person that we see in the mirror, right? And sometimes we're too hard on ourselves Sometimes we are not honest with ourselves, like sometimes we need a little, be a little more honest. We are uh, deluding ourselves. Uh, sometimes we're overconfident, a- and we're swimming in that kind of complex soup of the false self, like every single day, we're, 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 that's where we are. And when our relationship with God and ourselves is out of alignment, of course, how could we possibly relate in a completely healthy way to other people who are just as screwed up as we are? Like, we're bringing all of our baggage into every conversation, every text, email, all of, the, all of our communications. It's just slightly tainted because none of us is 100% healthy. And finally, and frankly, we're just very hard on that fourth relationship, which is the creation. Like, we're, we're just, in general, pretty hard on the place that we live, the ground and the water and the air. In the Bible, that's described, creation is described as the temple of God. And we've found ways to commod- make it a commodity, or even, and, and 
I hesitate to even say this because I, I think there's great importance in enjoying nature and national parks and being out, but we've even kind of turned it into something that I consume for my enjoyment rather than being there as a place of awe and wonder and worship. And it's easy to slip across that line. Now what is all this brokenness, these four great relationships, what does all that have to do with peace? Well, shalom in the Bible and what Jesus is talking about, shalom means the healing of those four great relationships. The healing of those relationships means wholeness. Uh, Shalom is comprehensive. That means it includes everything. And so it is personal, but it's never private. You can't have shalom just for one person and not for everyone else. That would be not the definition of shalom. Um, One cannot experience this shalom type of peace if your neighbor is also suffering or if they are withholding a piece of themselves from God or if they are living a lie. So shalom is for everyone. Uh, In a similar way, shalom is communal, but it's not communist in the sense of an organizational type of thing. Shalom is not accomplished through a system or a government or a set of ideals. And shalom is holistic peace. So as Scott McKnight uh, writes frequently, he says shalom is when you have what you need and you need what you have and when your neighbor has what he or she needs and needs what she or he or she has, right? So it's everybody is in on it. And shalom is the kind of peace that is brought about when all four of those great relationships are made whole. And yet, like if we're honest, and we don't even have to like try very hard to be honest, none of us is really there. None of us experiences shalom in fullness, right? None of us is completely healed. It's kind of like, what a mess. What are we to do? I mean, I thought this was supposed to be a message of good news and gospel preaching, and now the preacher's telling us that we're all screwed up. And <laughs> all right, here's the truth. Here's the gospel. Shannon just read Isaiah chapter 9, this message of promise about the coming Messiah. And we typically read that passage around Advent or Christmas time because it points to Jesus. And Jesus is the wonderful counselor, the everlasting father, the prince of what? Prince of peace. So when Jesus is born in Bethlehem, the angel armies give this concert, like a free concert in the park for the shepherds who are out tending their flocks. Uh, Angel armies are singing over them, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace and goodwill towards people with whom he's pleased. Amazing. Jesus is born under the nose, under the radar of Caesar Augustus, who was the prince of peace, the peacemaker, the man who brought about the Pax Romana. And Jesus is saying that with his arrival, the kingdom of God, shalom itself, is breaking into our world. And he's pronouncing this as gospel or good news. And he's declaring good news as a fact. That's what news is. It's not an editorial. It's like, here's something that has happened. And now, here's this part of it. I'm inviting you into this story. I'm inviting you into this reality. That's the good news. It's important to remember when we are talking about these beatitudes that we are not to be looking at these, these statements of Jesus as though they were describing 
you know, eight different individual people. Like, uh, there's room for those who are poor in spirit over there, but then those ones aren't poor in spirit, but you're merciful, but you guys aren't merciful or poor in spirit, uh, but you're pure in heart. You know what I'm saying? Like, that, that's not what this is. Jesus is declaring good news to a group of people who are clearly not blessed. They're not necessarily holy. They are not necessarily pure in heart. They certainly are not experiencing shalom. They are like us, desperately in need of help. And Jesus invites us into this good news in three main ways. So note takers, here are the three main ways that Jesus invites us into the good news. First, he invites us. Like, that's great news by itself. He doesn't demand us. He doesn't say, hey, here's a list of things you need to do before you can be part of what I've got going on. He doesn't give us um, uh, these ethical standards and say, meet those, and then you can be with me. It's all in reverse. He says, I know that you're in a dire situation. Come and follow me, and I will make you this way. I will make you a peacemaker. I will make you pure in heart. As you follow me and I rub off on you, that's what's going to happen. Flourishing are the poor in spirit because yours is the kingdom of heaven. The bar does not get much lower than that. Thank God. I'm looking out of this room, and if I had a mirror, I could see myself. We all qualify for that. The only thing that would disqualify me from that statement is if I thought, nah, I got it covered. Pride, that would disqualify me. But if you find yourself saying like, yeah, I, I need some help, Jesus, like I'm in trouble, I'm poor in spirit. Qualified, qualified. Everyone who's poor in spirit, those who are mourning over the state of their heart and over the world, um, the, the those who are the humble meek and the hungry and the thirsty for righteousness in our world, Jesus says, you're qualified. You're part of, my, part of my group. Come, trust me, that's how to flourish. So he invites. That's the first way to enter in to this gospel story. Second, Jesus accomplishes peace for us. I cannot say that enough. I know that we're reading the statement that says, sorry, I'm moving. <laughs> Blessed are the, uh, the peacemakers, he doesn't even say that statement. That statement cannot make sense unless he himself is the peacemaker through the cross. True shalom can't come from the human collective. It can't come from holding hands and singing together, although that is really fun and makes me feel good for about five minutes. It can't come from a source that isn't rooted in God and his power. It, true shalom starts with the God of the universe giving himself to wash us free of sin and shame. Ah, he's the peacemaker. And when we come to accept the new life that he's given us, we begin to live into that reality that we, that you, are the beloved of Jesus. We don't have to strive against him. We don't have to be harsh on ourselves. We don't have to judge other people in order to make our own identity. We don't have to invent our identity. You guys, if you, especially if you're a teenager right now, I know that part of your life development is creating an identity. Can I just give you a secret, which I couldn't even understand when I was a teenager. I'll just say it anyway. You have an identity. You are the beloved of Jesus. 
And, and it's taken some of us, well, I'm still not there yet, but lifetime, lifetime, lifetime to, to accept it, to accept it, to accept it, to accept it. The God of the universe loves you so much that he died to rescue you. You are of priceless value. If you get anything out of this, you are of priceless value to God. Jesus is the peacemaker. I have been ruminating on Jesus over the past five weeks that I've been gone, and I am coming back to you a thousand percent stronger than I was before, and I was pretty strong before, that Jesus is the point of it all, right? We are actually Christians, like Christ people, right? Like, but so, it's so tempting to, to make Jesus kind of a peripheral thing or something that we sing about and talk about, but then we just do what we're gonna do. We've got to be in concert with Jesus. He's the peacemaker. He's the point. So we're invited and we recognize that Jesus is the one who gives us peace. He's the peacemaker. And third, when we trust him, when we abide in him, he makes us then the kind of people who can make peace in the world. My question is on that third point, he makes us the kind of people who can make peace in the world. How on earth does he do that? How does he do it? Well, the angels declare the good news of the birth of Jesus. Remember, they say, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace and goodwill toward people. And Daryl Johnson makes the observation that while we want to focus on the peace part of that declaration, the opening clause in the declaration is the glory to God peace. It's glory to God in the highest and on earth peace and goodwill towards people. Uh, Many of our human-led, well-intentioned movements for peace and justice are just that, human-led. And the scariest place that that happens is the church. Uh, Of course we know that people that don't call on Jesus who are doing good work in the world, that that's human-led, and they do some great things, but the churches are particularly scary because what we typically do is we get a good idea, then we pray about it, That's our rubber stamp that Jesus must be behind it and then we just go marching on in our own strength and you have a bunch of tired and worn out people who get frustrated and angry about the world. That's a danger. So when when we work for peace from a human-dependent, a human-centered place, we're going to fail. And I want to say this, this is important to say, there's nothing wrong with being human. Like, God made you human. And humans reflect the glory of God. You are the most majestic, glory-filled being, species of thing uh, that God created in the world. That's, That's amazing. But our glory, our weightiness, our our worth, it's because of it's because of God. And we can't separate that. Right? It's like when John talks about abiding in the vine. As soon as we stop abiding in Jesus, we wither, we die. So the place to begin each day and each hour and each movement toward action for peace is dependence on God. And maybe asking the question, what would bring God glory here? What would God's glory look like in this situation? What does shalom look like in the ministry of Jesus? Which is why so frequently we're walking through the Gospels as a church community. 
We got to remember what it looks like in the life of Jesus so we can emulate it. Does my version of peace look like something that God would be behind? Could we imagine Jesus doing it this way? And if true peace is dependent on the glory of God, then evangelism is vital. If you want peace, share the good news of the lordship of Jesus and his vision of shalom. And I don't know that like Bellingham culture, like we're not big on evangelism. I'm not big on like sign waving and like bugging people. But if I, I really do believe that Jesus has the answer for peace in the world. And I want to be praying for my friends and neighbors that they know this Jesus because there's no one like him in the universe. There's no one like him who can do what he does, who has done what he did, and can rescue. No one can do that like Jesus can. Another piece to this, how does this actually work out? is to come to grips that, that it's costly. Peacemaking is just plain costly. Dale Bruner points out that Jesus does not call us to be people who wish for peace or people who love peace or people who post about peace on social media all the time. I'm sure all of those things can have their place. But he doesn't call us to be those things. He calls us to be peacemakers. And to be a peacemaker is costly. Because making peace will require us to forgive people. And that's always costly. It will require us to submit our desires for the good of other people. It might mean consuming less so that those who lack basic needs and goods might have what they need. And that's just not a upwardly mobile Western ideal. I earned this. I ought to be able to enjoy every bit of it. But peacemaking requires cost. Shalom making will mean giving up some rights for the good of other people. We're kind of seeing that play out with this whole debate on masking and vaccinations and all that. I don't want to even dive into that. I'll just leave it on the table. I think there are some good reasons for that argument, but some of the arguments I have heard from Christian people is don't mess with my rights. And if that's the only argument, it's not a Christian argument. Peacemaking will require listening and compromise in some areas and, and a commitment to truth, even when that commitment to truth is unpopular on the other hand. So it's going to require listening and compromise on the one hand. It's going to require a commitment to truth, unpopular truth on the other hand. And we need to be discerning on what that line is. You know, for those who've, who claim to follow Jesus— which I do, I claim to follow Jesus. He's the peacemaker. I have to come to grips that if my master accomplished peace, peace through a sacrificial death on the cross, then I'm probably going to have to sacrifice something too. How can we claim to follow Jesus and say, well, I probably, you know, can cut corners and it, it'll probably be pretty smooth sailing for me. Like when our literal master has shown us a different way and says, take up your cross and follow me. Finally, in a world that so, so overwhelms us with causes and pictures from across the world and loud voices vying for our time and attention and pocketbook, it's important to remember that most of us will make the most impact 
most of us will make the most impact by being faithful to the context where Jesus has placed us. Most of us will make the most impact being faithful to the context in which Jesus has placed us. And that context includes those in our lives, in our families, in our houses, in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, but it also includes an often overlooked most immediate context, and that is your, your own heart. That is your own heart. Listen to this quote by Carlos Castaneda, a Peruvian American who writes, now he's, he's a little bit dated, uh, he, I came from Latin America, where intellectuals were always talking about political and social revolution and where lots of bombs were thrown. But revolution hasn't really changed much. It takes little daring to bomb a building, but in order to give up cigarettes or stop being anxious or to stop internal chattering, you have to remake yourself. And this is really where the reform begins. Now, a little bit dated. I don't know if cigarette smoking is the biggest thing. Don't do it, kids. But, but I, I don't want to poo-poo the idea of the small things that matter. Um, you, might be, you might have the best posts on social media, but if you're gossiping, like it just seems like a small thing. Man, that really does more damage to people. You know? Uh, the, the way that we handle our own internal business, those quote-unquote small sins that we rationalize all the time. It's got to begin in that house. It's got to begin at home if there's going to be real peace in the world. Because what he's saying is, hey, all these big revolutions, they're exciting. And people, like, the regime changes happen. But, like, the very people who now are in power, they've not focused on their own internal life. So if you've got sinners leading the country, and then you've got new sinners leading the country, you've still got the same types of problems with maybe just different politics. So whether it's throwing bombs or trying to carry out a revolution by throwing social media bombs, the change has to begin in our hearts and in our families and in our churches and in our communities. And I, I say big ideas are seductive because it puts the onus on other people to really do the change. The big ideas, the big movements, the big marches, by the way, they're important. They're important. But if that's all we're doing, that's a problem. If that's all we're doing is is ringing a bell, waving a flag, that's not where lasting chains come from. And the good news is that Jesus, the peacemaker, he's paved the way. He's invited us into a life of peacemaking that he empowers and that he informs, and that he sustains. Jesus, Jesus is our peace. Lord, Prince of Peace, courageous one who gave your life for us to do what we could not do. Help us to receive what you've done, not as a religious fact or a dogma, but as an act of love. I I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would open and soften the hearts of my sisters and brothers and I to receive you as the lover of our souls. And I pray that you would begin, that you would continue, really, to heal the broken parts of our hearts and our minds, our way of thinking and perceiving. 
that we could be peacemakers in this world of yours. In your name and in your power and in your wisdom, amen.